Welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories bring us back to ourselves. I am Asher Panjuris, and I am, as always, really honored for you to be joining me today. I have a quick announcement before we get to the interview, and that is that I am running a eight-week-long psychotherapy group for folks in Massachusetts or New York who want to explore barriers to nourishment, disordered eating behaviors, body dysmorphia. Um, It is a space for queer folks. And I have two spots left in the group. It's going to be a small, intimate group. I have two sliding scale spots available. So if you're interested in that, it starts February 2nd, so quite soon. Please reach out to me at livinginthisqueerbody at gmail.com or you can DM me on Instagram. And if you want to hear more about the group, just reach out. I think it'll be a really special and intimate experience and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So our guest today is someone who I'd been wanting to talk to for for quite some time, in part just because, you know, despite a lot of differences, we have a lot of, um, I think, overlapping insights that we've come to over the years. And it feels like an interesting meeting of minds and bodies, I guess, through the Zoom space. So I'm really delighted to introduce you all to Sid Yang. Sid is a mixed-race, Taiwanese-American, queer, non-binary healer, intuitive counselor, and writer who weaves together magic, possibility, and intention as an energy healer in the world through their practice, Blue Jaguar Healing Arts. As someone who lives with depression and anxiety and has recovered from severe eating disorders, Sid's work finds its resonance in the stories we each hold at the intersection of memory, body, sexuality, and mental health. Sid works primarily with queer and trans BIPOC individuals, as well as regularly led workshops, community healing circles, and has been a group facilitator for over two decades with a specific focus on grief, healing, ancestral trauma, sexuality, spirituality, body liberation, and eating disorder recovery. Their recent memoir, Release, A Bulimia Story, reimagines what discovery would look like without shame. And you can find them in many places. You can find them at Jaguar Healing Arts or at Release Bulimia on Instagram. And we'll have a lot of information about how to find out more about Sid in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And... Take good care of yourselves and each other. Sid, thank you. This has been a much anticipated conversation. I've really been looking forward to talking with you. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. Yeah. So 
I guess we'll start as I as I typically do with a question and you can answer it however however you feel compelled. What are the earliest memories that you have of learning about or hearing about what it meant to be or seeing what it meant to be in a body? I love this question of like the first sense of embodiment as a child or the sense that I had agency over this the shape that I got to run around the world in. Mm. And when I was a kid, you know, I was definitely what people call the tomboy and, you know, liked to play sports and wanted to play with all the boys and didn't want to do the girl things. I was constantly being told all the time, oh, you can do this, but you can't do that. Your mm. body allows you to do this, but you can't do that. And so one of the big things that I remember is like getting into this huge fight with my mom is, so my mom is a white American woman who grew up in like the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And she had this notion that, you know, we have to understand, we were, were all raised, me and my siblings were all raised in Southern California, that we had to understand like winter. And so like winter sports and like winter culture, mm. right? And we're like, it doesn't snow here. Like, I don't understand why we have to do this. And she was like, no, you need to learn all of these things. And one of them is ice skating. So you need to learn how to ice skate, which seemed weird as a kid where like, this has no relevance to our life, but sure. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to have to learn how to ice skate, then I get to play ice hockey. Mm -hmm. And that to me just made so much sense. I'm like, that looks fun. That is a sport that actually I really love watching. And I love the, like, just everything about it. So we went to an ice drink and it was like me and my sisters, like two other sisters. And my mom's like, okay, we're going to sign you up for classes so you can learn how to ice skate. And I'm like, great. So I'm going to play ice hockey. And so I was like asking, and my mom's like, no, you can't play ice hockey because you're not a boy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh? Well, that doesn't make sense <laughs> to me because <laughs> in my head, this idea of like girl or boy, like it was like, it seems so arbitrary. I'm like, well, if these people over there can do this thing, I can do this thing. And just because they're boys doesn't mean it's any better or any less than right. um, or inaccessible. And that was that first, like, I remember having this moment of like, well, why does my body have to look this way? Like, why does my body have to tell you that I, like, what is it that my body says that it yeah. can't play hockey? <laughs> and I'm like, I can play hockey. Like, obviously. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so there was this, that's this like moment when like having a body and having a gender became really, really um, clear for me that somehow those two weren't in sync. Mm -hmm. And um, it became like, you know, this is a lot of my childhood, but that was, you know, one moment, but like so much of that was like, well, what does it mean then to be a boy or a girl, but also to have a body and it got really confusing. And I was like, mm -hmm. I don't know how to be and move in spaces. And, um, you know, I was told lots of times, like, you can't wear, I wasn't allowed to wear shorts to school because my mom's like, your legs will distract the boys. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. <laughs> like, like in all these ways, I'm like, why would like, I'm not a feminine girl, right? And I put girl, girl in quotes. So I'm like, why would that distract boys? I don't understand. But also they're just legs. Um, and so there's this like just layers and layers of confusion around, yeah, what this body was supposed to represent and do and how it was supposed to serve me, be with me, like how like this was my body, like I couldn't escape it, but I didn't understand where it belonged or how it fit in. For a long time, it became this thing where 
oh, well, if I wear the right clothes or if I have the right length of hair, then I can fit in and this body makes sense to people, but it didn't make sense to me. And so that became like this like contemplation throughout much, much of my life of like, what is, what is this body and where does it fit? And how do I make it more comfortable for me? At the same time, knowing that somehow the presence of my body in its gender ambiguity as a kid and then later on in its queerness became uncomfortable for other people. Yeah. And so like, that's the piece where I was like, I don't know how to navigate where's the comfort for me in belonging and where's the comfort in belonging for others. And what's my responsibility Mm -hmm. in that as a person in a body? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And the kind of, I mean, just hearing, I don't know if there, there was a religious kind of orientation that informed your mom saying, you know, your, your legs would be distracting, but the idea, like the confusing messaging around your body is very powerful in ways that you don't, that that are kind of not in your control. And then your body is not powerful. It cannot play ice hockey, you know, like these kind of dualities around power and that sounds really, you know, I mean, it's, it's so common, but it's also just so confusing to, for children, I think, to like sit yeah. with that, make sense of it. Yeah. I, yeah, I really like that, that question or the framing of the both powerful and not powerful. And I think so much of that is rooted in the, the religious framework and the religious community that I was raised in, which was mm. an evangelical Christian cults, very, very, very severe and very uh, controlling, uh, especially around gender and bodies and Mm. especially, quote, female bodies. And these ways that it was seen that I was supposed to be quiet, I was supposed to be like, make my body really small. Yep. And I took up too much space energetically. I took up too much space with my, like, you know, ideas. But also as a kid being told all the time, I was too masculine. I was too loud. I was too, I was too fat was something they told me all the time. And, and I was not a fat child at all. And so like there was, there's, you know, created a lot of dissonance um, in my brain. And so like, I have, when I think about my childhood, my idea of myself is, is a child in a much bigger body. And I look at pictures and I was like, I don't know who that kid is. And Mm. I was at my, with some relatives a couple of years ago, Maybe, 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 you know, not this recent, but maybe about like 10 or so, 10, 15 years ago. And one of my relatives is like, oh, look at these, look at these pictures of you. And I was like, maybe six or seven in the picture. And I was like, who is that kid? And they're like, that's you. And I'm like, but that kid's so lanky. Like, who is that kid? That's not me. Right, right. <laughs> and it's just the way that like, I have, I was, even though I knew I had a body, I was so disconnected from yes. it that I actually don't have a sense of what that body looked like and felt like then because I had, I was taking in all of these messages that my body was wrong, Mm. that my body was not feminine enough, that my body was too fat, that my body was too just wrong. And how much that has, that stayed with me and like, kind of like wove into like the cells of my body so that as I grew up and those cells like multiplied, it became stronger and stronger and stronger. And, um, that sense of self or that sense of identity I couldn't separate it out anymore. And that's been a lot of what my, my healing work has done as an adult of like, what is, and what was, and what is truth and what isn't truth and what is me and what isn't me or what was me, what, you know, and like, Mm. uh, it's kind of like peeling apart, like having to deconstruct all the pieces. And I know that like 
so much of that is connected to the work I do around like deconstructing my religious trauma, but also <clears throat> decon and like those, all those messages, right. That we just talked about. I mean, there's so much more, right. So deconstructing all of that, but also deconstructing ideas around gender and ideas yes. around body and embodiment. And this idea that this is a body that <clears throat> I have agency over, which, you know, is a pretty new concept for me in the past, like maybe decade or so. Mm. Um, and that also that this is a body that can give me pleasure, that can be a source of pleasure, that can be a site of pleasure mm. um, for myself and for others. And like, that is also new probably within the last decade as well. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and mm -hmm. even though like, you know, we can go back to like that, that moment of it, like, when did I know I had a body? I think one of the like that, like when I think about that question, another thing is like when I learned how to masturbate as a kid and then I was like, oh, oh, this is nice. I like this. Yeah. <laughs> this good. And yet around that became so much shame. I'm like, oh, I can't tell anybody. I can't tell my parents. I can't, you know, there was like joy and excitement yes. around this and yet shame and, and like secretiveness. And um, I learned that because I, um, I told a friend, <laughs> I was like, oh, if you do this thing, it feels really fucking good. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, that friend, I think, told like their mom or my mom or something. And then I got in trouble. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I was, and so that was like that learning of like, okay, don't talk about these things. Um, and so that was, um, yeah, the ways that I've, like there was these moments of like my body saying, Hey, I can be on your side. Yeah, like, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and then how quickly, because of the con construct or the framework of the world that I was raised in, of the family systems, of the church systems, um, how quickly that was silenced and like erased or not even erased, but just shut down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so right. like, myself, having to relearn it. <laughs> Yeah, relearn it. But also, I think, you know, I wonder if this is maybe a place where at some point the like discourses or the around queerness or like the social, you know, that there's something socially sanctioned within discourses around queerness about like, I mean, this is a very broad statement. It's not entirely accurate, actually. But, you know, there are certain communities or certain aspects of queer discourse that are very much about, you know, centering pleasure in whatever body you have and right. whatever the body you know, kind of is or may look like or aspires to be, you know, that that expansiveness, I would imagine must have been confusing for you to encounter, but also helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it was exciting. Yeah. Right? Like as a kid to be like, Oh, this is really cool. Like, how do I, how can I use my body to get more pleasure and not just sexual pleasure, but like all kinds of pleasure. I think for mm -hmm. me, it was also around playing sports and mm. um, being able to be in water and like swim and be in a pool and be outside and um, that my body gave me access to those pieces. Mm. Uh, yeah. And those experiences and it, it, um, yeah. It I like, cool. I like that you, you use the word earlier comfort in your body and that 
like pleasure there's a there's definitely a pleasure and real elusiveness i think for a lot of people and maybe maybe particularly people who um kind of tend to manifest some of their trauma through dis, the kind of disordered eating behaviors um there is a, a like an elusiveness to the idea of experiencing any kind of comfort in the body um or ease um in the body it's such a it's such a like a sight a fraught you know sight Mm -hmm. um and i wonder if maybe i don't know where that takes you but if if you could speak to that a little bit in your own experience yeah i think that you know something that really was really hard for me when I was younger and living with an eating disorder and I had pretty um, severe bulimia different. Mm-hmm. I mean, throughout much of my uh, like adolescence and, and uh, you know, adult life. But one of the things in that was this idea that I would hear this message all the time. Oh, but you have to love your body. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. But that doesn't seem possible <laughs> like ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, so complicated to just like tell people, oh, just love your body as if this is an easy thing to do when our bodies are like the, like hold so much of our wounded wounds and our trauma and our, those stories that are crippling or crippling is the wrong word, um, that are just, they're belittling of us. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would for years be like, okay, well, if I'm supposed to love my body more, what does that mean? Like, I'm supposed to love bodies that are thin, that are feminine, that are able-bodied, that are um, quiet, that are mm-hmm. demure, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I'm, that's what's supposed to be lovable. At least that's what I was told was a lovable body yep. or an acceptable body. And I'm like, well, that my, my body's not any of those things. Oh, and I'm supposed to be straight. <laughs> There's also that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, as I got older and, and went through recovery and I worked with um, some healers and a therapist and really it was, it was a model of a harm reduction that really moved through my recovery in, in a really effective and functional way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the first like approach to eating disorder recovery that actually stuck with me was, um, and worked for me was, was harm reduction because what it was telling me is that my body's not wrong. And that the core of my, so much around my eating disorder was that my body was wrong. Um, And so to be, to hear that my body's not wrong was this moment of like expansive, like possibility that my body's like, wait, what if I'm not wrong? Mm -hmm. What if? And it was like those, those moments of like possibility that created the spaciousness for my body to be like, oh, maybe I can settle into not being wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's where this idea of comfort started showing up of like, I can be comfortable in the contradictions of this body, in in this body that isn't what I'm told it should be. But in Mm -hmm. its own expression, its own wholeness and fullness and like what it, what it is in this moment, then that became a sense for me as I like went deeper and deeper into that and created more possibility and created more spaciousness through my recovery and through my healing work that all of a sudden it was like, oh, this body 
could be comfortable, which means it can also be a place of home Mm -hmm. and it can also be a place of sanctuary. And if this body that is something that I have fought my entire life against um, and questioned it and tore it up and like talked to it so like, you know, cruelly, Mm -hmm. then how is it becoming home? And in that process, there was this moment of, or these moments, right? And there's still these moments of, oh, this is freedom. And it's not that I don't think about ways that I'm struggling in my body. And it doesn't mean that I love this body in every moment. Um, And I think like, it's actually big. It feels bigger than love. It feels like a sense of liberation. And so in my work, I don't talk about like in the work that I do with clients around eating disorder recovery, we don't talk, we talk about recovery, but recovery isn't the end goal. Yeah. Like what we're working towards is we're working beyond, we're going beyond recovery, we're working towards liberation. And mm. like, what does liberation feel like in our bodies? What does liberation feel like when we breathe? What does liberation feel like when we eat? What does liberation feel like when we're having sex? What does liberation feel like when we look at ourselves in the mirror? Um, or just like walking into a store and being seen by strangers. What does that feel like? And how do we embody that in our everyday moments in the ways that we are talking to ourselves or even just being with ourselves? And that to me is so much more transformative than sitting with this idea of just love your body or be positive around your body. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think body positivity as a frame like where it came from out of fat fat activism is really powerful to remember but how it's been distorted and currently is that it minimizes the ways that we're like bodies have been transgressive in a traditional like heteronormative cisnormative space um and i want to go back to that like what are the roots of that like that it's beyond just being positive around our bodies, right? Mm. Which can be bypassing. Like if we, if we take around like just, oh, just everything's great and like forget the, com- the complexity of it. Mm-hmm. But to go to this transformative place of like, no, we need to disrupt uh, notions of what bodies are acceptable or what bodies are palatable mm. uh, or mm-hmm. what bodies make me comfortable and to create space for all forms and expressions and experiences of bodies to be to have that spaciousness, to not just be home to themselves, but to create sanctuary for all of us together. Like, what does that look like? Mm. Um, And what are the communities that then get created and formed because there is that permission to be whole, to be other, to be different, to be transgressive, like in those things as being really positive things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so if body positivity is about permission to be in our wholeness, then it's so much more and so much deeper. And it's like very spiritual work, I find, Mm -hmm. um, to explore what it would take for each of us to access that wholeness within ourselves, but in an embodied way of being able to not just have this experience, like this metaphysical experience that's external to the physical body, but to have it rooted in what is in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, like where that's showing up in my, in the present moment mm-hmm. is, um, 
So this body <laughs> of mine, as it's aging, um, is going through menopause and it's, uh, like, I have so many feelings about it and, um, it's complicated yeah. and what it's done is it has, it's almost like it's pulled the rug out from underneath me. It's like turned everything upside down. I was like, okay, so you felt comfortable. You'd learn how to be comfortable in this body. We're going to switch everything up. <laughs> yeah. like, right. So that thing that you were comfortable with, just kidding. Um, it's going to change. And mm. so it's like being like everything around the ways I move through the world around the foods I can eat. I can't drink coffee anymore. Like all of these things are so, I mean, they're devastating. Right. <laughs> mm. Um, and yet at the same time, it's this invitation to be like, all right, if I'm really, my commitment is to be in that spaciousness with myself, how do I be in this spaciousness when my body is changing in a way that I have no framework for or no context for. Yeah. And how do I do that as a queer person and a trans non-binary person who also doesn't have access to a lot of elders in queer mm -hmm. spaces and in trans spaces who are talking about menopause in a really explicit and open way. And so it's been this place where I'm like, I feel really alone yeah. and really isolated and trying and like reaching out and being like, okay, part of also being comfortable in my body is being comfortable in a collective body. And so like, I feel like that's where my practice mm -hmm. is now of like really expanding out like that. I'm not, I'm not just an individual. I am a single body. Yes. But I'm also part of this larger collective. And so how do we hold liberation or practice liberation or practice permission and spaciousness in the collective? Um, and especially for those of us who are aging mm -hmm. um, within queer and trans spaces. And what does that look like? What are those conversations? How do we build together and root together and um, laugh together, right? Because that's a part of growing <laughs> and building in all these ways so that none of us are like just left behind or isolated or um, abandoned. Yeah. Uh, so I'm thinking about that a lot. And I feel like that's, that's where the aliveness in this, this question around like, what is body positivity, body liberation is for me is really this curiosity and desire to be in this collective body in a way that doesn't force anyone to be erased or excluded. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that. And I think part of what I'm hearing you saying it is that it's it's not only about not forcing people to be erased or excluded, but also when you were talking about, you know, harm reduction or talking about moving beyond recovery as a paradigm, but but towards liberation, it seems that embedded in those ideas is the idea that like messiness and the discomfort and the not always loving one's body and all of the parts of oneself that that don't kind of um <laughs> always add up to you know feeling great about uh things on a on any given day or don't amount to comfort on a certain day you know that i mean what comes to mind when i think about um harm reduction in the context of you know, disordered eating recovery is, is 
really, and maybe you could speak to this more specifically for you, but mm-hmm. is the idea of sort of allowing for the pushback or the the discomfort or the or acknowledging like, okay, I'm existing in a changing body. I'm queer and trans or non-binary identified. I'm going through menopause. I'm not going to pretend this is easy. This is not, you know, like it's not, it isn't some, it isn't easy. I, I didn't decide, okay, I love my body. I'm okay with my body now. It's not a static thing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's kind of, and you're pointing to that, you know, beautifully and talking about this new stage of your, <laughs> your life and th- thought process. I mean, maybe I, I guess I would be curious to hear a little bit more about what comes to mind or what has been helpful for you when it when it pertains to allowing for the messiness of your thoughts and feelings, like around menopause, for instance. Yeah. Oh, what has allowed? <laughs> what has given me what permission? Is, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had this idea when I was younger that healing was linear, mm-hmm. that recovery would happen very quickly. Um, and I think for me, there was this, I used to be a smoker. Like I used to smoke a lot of cigarettes mm-hmm. and I was able to quit. I like quit cold turkey and I was like, I'm done. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's how, that's how healing, <laughs> you know, right. recovery from an eating disorder will work. It's like, I'm done cold turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, no. <laughs> It did not work. And I think like that, what I've learned out of that is this patience piece of not just like the expectations I have of like, oh, I'm over it. Like then it's done. Yes. Um, but I think there's so much more layered and complicated and like, I have to respect the different layers, right. And that the layers show up at different times. I think for me, one of the practices that has been so instrumental or ways of being that's been so instrumental in this, in my recovery practice, um, is, was reclaiming a relationship to Buddhism. And so even though I was raised Christian and evangelical Christian, my cultural roots are in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And I was told like, Buddhism is evil, Buddhism is bad, Buddhism, all these things, right? And as I got older and started reading more about it, I'm like, oh, but this shit resonates. (laughs) Like this makes Mm. a lot of sense. And this idea of being with, yes, mm-hmm. um, and being with my feelings, being with my body, being with what is, being with the moment has been super transformative in helping me move through the different layers and roadblocks and you know all the things that come with recovery. And at the same time, I'm able to bring that into my relationship to the um, to being with menopause right now. Is like, oh, okay, what is in this moment? What am I experiencing in this moment? Is it a headache? Is it like the worst mood-like swings like I've ever experienced? Um, Those have been intense. Mm. (laughs) Is it a hot flash? Is it, what is it in this moment? And how do I be with what is now, right? Not how I want it to be, not what it was yesterday or two months ago or two years ago or how like, um, oh, if this is gone, I will feel this much better, right? And just allowing it, allowing myself to be in, the discomfort of the moment. And I think for me, so much of my spiritual practice has been this um, invitation to be, to find the comfort within the discomfort. Mm -hmm. And 
And that's so much of that is like, my body is a source of discomfort for me. It has been for such a long time in my life. Yeah. It also has become a site of comfort and home. And so how do I like to be with the both and of that yes. and to be with the contradiction of that. And so that's where I think I am with, with the menopause is there's parts that are so challenging and yet by being learning, you know, I've had these practices and these tools of being with the discomfort, it has made it easier for me to ask for help. Mm. Um, it's made it easier to reach out to others and start conversations. Yes. And to not isolate myself in ways that I have in the past. Mm. And I find that like really interesting <laughs> that these way, like, you know, as a child growing up, I was told to like that my body was shameful, that body functioning was shameful, body desire, the desires I had were shameful. Um, that to get to this place where I'd been told you be silent, you don't talk about your body to this place where I'm like, oh, let me talk about the messiness yes. of this body. Um, and that in that messiness, there's beauty, there's the sublime, there's tenderness and sweetness. Um, and also it's, there's like seeds for um, change and like transformation, not just for myself, but for others. Mm-hmm. And it's this place where like, can I uh, build bridges or build um, connection with others from this messiness of just having a human body? And what I'm finding is it's one of the sweetest and richest like ways of, con- of connection that I'm finding mm. uh, both with my clients, but also with friends and others. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, when I, I guess one of the, the thoughts I have is that based on working with my patients and, and, you know, my own self and my mm-hmm. own ex- body experience, I think that um, there are certain really potent moments where we are experiencing pain or discomfort and it can with without you know like these structures for finding comfort in the discomfort as you're talking about you know can leave us really vulnerable I guess to I guess in my personal you know experience it it has left me very vulnerable to more broadly like wellness discourses right discourses Mm -hmm. around fixing or you know adding this in or doing that you know this little um and I wonder if you've noticed that within this kind of, you know, surprising like body experience that is is happening for you. If you found yourself maybe not, you know, necessarily engaging in certain in different practices, but feeling more vulnerable to wellness discourses. Yeah, I think I love this conversation around wellness discourses. I think it's so relevant in a lot of ways politically, but also in the ways that um, operate within healing spaces or, um, and I can also say healing with quotes around it spaces and especially in eating disorder recovery spaces. Yeah. And so like this, there's something about wellness conversations that have always felt off to me Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. in that a lot of the messages that come out of like, eat this, do this, do this exercise, do this, take this supplement is at its core. It's saying our body is wrong. Yeah, absolutely. 
And that is such a damaging message, whether it's explicit or implicit. And our bodies are so smart. (laughs) There's like so much wisdom in our bodies by the mere fact that they have survived and the mere fact that they are alive. That that wisdom is something that I would rather let's center our wellness around body wisdom um, as opposed to um, fixing or adjusting Mm. how this body operates or doesn't operate. And what if, right, there was space for bodies to be different? (laughs) Like, and I know that that sounds like, of course, there's like, everybody is different. But really, like, yeah, if we talked about healing and wellness in a way that, like, that, like, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I don't believe I'm going to use this word. It feels so like cheesy, but like the diversity of mm-hmm. bodies mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> is actually what, like what we're looking for. Yeah. Right. And it's not just about shape or size or ethnicity or ability. It's like, there's so much more to that. It's how we, bodies are different in how we digest foods and bodies yes. are different in um, how we can access movement and like all of the things what if wellness centered itself around that? Yeah. Like, I feel like the conversations would be really different. <laughs> it would be re- much more interesting. They would center the stories of people and marginalized bodies in different ways. Mm. It would, I think, and what I would love to see more of are bodies and body stories and body wisdom that doesn't presume a cis straight gender normative experience, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and and it's a way like you could say like, yeah, this is, you know, decolonizing the ideas behind wellness and health. And, you know, there's a lot of people talking about this in a lot of different places. Um, but I think like it's a conversation that isn't, it isn't saturated yet. Like there's, there's no. so much more to be learned and um, so much of my work is about our stories, that if we can tell stories that are not the mainstream stories, then what we do with those, what those stories do is they create possibility for other people to feel like they belong mm-hmm. and to be seen and to be invited in to um, a sense of that comfort, that liberation that we talked about, that collective body. And I think for me, like there was when I was younger, I was like, what is this? You know, I was struggling with bulimia and I didn't have, um, I didn't really know the questions to ask. And the therapists I was going, I I was going to see, especially when I was in college and grad school, um, were really dismissive Mm. and very extremely judgmental around queerness and um, gender stuff. Mm-hmm. And especially around like no competency around race <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so just like, I just, it was really hard for me. And a lot of the messages that came out were what we're talking about, you know, around the wellness industry of like the body is wrong of being told, well, my body is being wrong. Um, and I was like, okay, not helping. This is making things worse. Yeah. Um, and so I started reading books and I was like, okay, any book I could get my hands on. And this was like in the nineties around people's memoirs around bulimia or eating disorders. 
and everything, nothing resonated. I was like, ah, oh. it was like, oh, like this idea of like, oh, I just wanted to be thin. And I was like, that's not my story. There's so much more. And I never quite found um, what I was looking for. And still like to this day, I read, I read books and I'm like, who else is telling these stories? And it wasn't until recently where I'm like, okay, then maybe I should have to write my story or tell my stories and what that means, what my experience was, right? My tiny little sliver of the piece of the puzzle of being in a queer body and being in a body that lives with depression and anxiety and a body that is non-binary. Like what has that, how has that informed my experience around an eating disorder and also around recovery? And what I found since releasing that book like two years ago, I think it was, is that so many people have been like, wow, finally there's a story that I can resonate with. Mm -hmm. It feels different. And in writing the story also, I was really intentional that I was like, I need to be able to write this story without shame. Like shame is absolutely a story (laughs) of eating disorder recovery. Like it's absolutely a story, like piece of addiction. Like shame is real. Like I'm not saying it didn't happen. Yeah. Um, I just don't want to feed you any more shame. Um, I think all of us, especially queer and trans folks and BIPOC folks, like we have internalized so much shame um, Mm -hmm. in our lives and on the daily that as somebody who's offering up a story for a possibility, why would I want to perpetuate more shame in any of our bodies? And so I was like, I have to, I want to write this without, I'm going to take the shame out of it. And that's where I'm seeing where that the impact is, is having is that by telling a story where I'm not wrong, where my child self wasn't wrong. And like that first moment when it learned that throwing up was a really powerful option for it, that can I tell that story that I'm like, that wasn't a bad thing. Yes. What if it's not a bad thing? That was me surviving some pretty shitty stuff. Um, It became dysfunctional in this body and became a form of self-harm. But in that moment, it was a source of power. Yeah. And who was telling that story? Um, And so that's what I think for me is in telling my stories, but also in creating spaces where others, especially marginalized bodies, can tell their stories around eating disorder recovery is that survival is actually a really powerful and beautiful um, story to witness. And that our bodies hold that wisdom, that power, and how to be in that power. and how do we honor like BIPOC survival and trans survival and um, all of those different ways that our bodies are like, I can still exist. I have a right to exist, even when the world says I should not exist. Mm-hmm. And can we in this process think about existence as a radical act? And how and survival as a radical act. And so if in this moment, an eating disorder is what, and disordered eating is what allows you to survive. Yep. That's like, that's powerful. Yep. And can we honor that in that, that is what is in this moment, right? It's not what was or what will be, but it's what is in this moment. If we can honor that and give it um, and hold it almost sacred. Yes. And that's where we're able to create different choices and change and transformation for ourselves Mm -hmm. and for others. And I like to think, you know, one of the things I talk about in my work is that for a lot of folks like BIPOC folks or queer and trans folks, like our bodies aren't supposed to exist. 
in the current paradigm, political paradigm, social paradigm, religious paradigms that we operate, that we live in in these days. Yes. Uh, when it's not supposed to exist. And so feeding our bodies, like nourishing our bodies, eating, right? Yeah. <laughs> is a radical act. Yes. And so when the wellness industry, we're going to go back to that. When the wellness industry says, don't eat this food or only eat this food, what they're saying, what I hear in that is your body shouldn't exist or it should only exist in one way. Yes. And what I want to hear more of and have more spaciousness for is for each of our bodies to have the agency to say, I get to choose what is best for me, what brings this body pleasure, what brings this body agent, like not agency, but like ability to feel good and feel comfortable. And for one person, maybe that's eating gluten and maybe for another person it's not, but can we give that spaciousness mm -hmm. that we, our bodies are wise enough to know? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I'm basically just cheerleading you um, from the <laughs> sidelines here. I, I, I mean, I can't tell you how, how much I appreciate your perspective. It's a really profound, I think, healing perspective. And I put that in quotes, but I, I maybe I mean more like a transformative, liberatory perspective to be able to acknowledge with another person or with a community of people that there is wisdom or purpose or survival that is a story, essentially, as you said, embedded in what we call, you know, kind of disordered eating behaviors and that honoring that purposefulness or honoring that, you know, uh, survival is, is a really significant part of stripping away the shame or the messaging around, you know, your body doesn't actually need to be here in the messiness that it, it might show up with. And so I, I, you know, I just, I really, I appreciate your perspective. I is, it is what so many of the people that I, that I work with and, you know, need, need and want to hear. And so I am grateful that I'm grateful that you wrote the book that you needed to um, read. And I'm also grateful that along the way, and I, I just want to give a shout out to, um, what is it? The Queer Spirit podcast. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yes. You talk a lot on that interview and in that interview about like the actual steps that you took, like the, the healers and the practitioners right. who really helped you to get to the place probably where you were able to <laughs> write this book. Right. You know, like yeah, amongst, absolutely. amongst other things, you know, but I really, I want to, you know, if people have questions about that, you know, that's a really um, lovely podcast interview. Thank and, you. but yeah, I, I, we could talk about this forever, but I, I'm, Maybe we can talk a little bit about how people could continue to find out more about you and your work and, and also connect with you if, if things resonate for them. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. I am always open. I think like that's, that's like, there's this, uh, yeah, I'm just always open for folks to reach out. Um, and that we're in this together, that my healing is tied up in everybody else's healing. Like we, mm -hmm. we heal together. This is recovery is not linear and recovery is not individual. 
Um, and mm-hmm. so my website is uh, bluejaguarhealingarts.com. Um, and I'm on Instagram at, at release bulimia is my business. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more stuff about my book on that um, handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm reading through different chapters. So you can like watch little videos as I'm like reading through the book. I love that. Um, like I, love so story having, time. I love having story time. I love when people read to me. I think that's so cute that you're yeah. doing that. Amazing. <laughs> and I, I love reading. So like the book was written to be actually spoken because it is more of a, it's a conversation. Mm. Storytelling, right. So it definitely has a poetic uh, feel to it. Mm. Yeah. And then, yeah, I think those are the, those are the right. quickest yeah. ways to reach me. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. We will put that all in the show notes and I hope people can, can connect with you and reach out to you. And I'm so glad to finally be able to sit down and and talk and look forward to um, more conversations um, with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the invitation to be with you today. Yeah.